the first trap that, that a board can fall into is to fail to take a clear-eyed and non-judgmental view of its current and its historic performance. You can only truly improve if you understand where you're starting from. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. This is the seventh in a series of episodes dedicated to the fundamentals of community college governance. In this series, Jackie King, co-editor of the recently released Trusteeship in Community Colleges, A Guide for Effective Governance 2nd Edition, interviews chapter authors about how to govern. In this episode, the tables turn as ACCT's David Connor and Colleen Allen interview Jackie and discuss trusteeship and student success. There are a couple of great stories in here that I think you'll enjoy. This conversation was recorded on Zoom, so please excuse a few brief dips in audio quality. Hello, and welcome to In the Know with ACCT. Um, I am David Connor, Director of Strategic Communications for ACCT, and I am here with Jackie King, um, our co-editor for the book, Trusteeship in Community Colleges, A Guide for Effective Governance, second edition, um, thoroughly revised and expanded. And also here uh, with my colleague, Colleen Allen, um, who directs our uh, retreats and evaluation services. And we're gonna have a little talk today about student success. Uh, because Jackie literally wrote the chapter, if not the book, the chapter on student success um, within the book. So um, just to jump right into it, the uh, ACCT convened our first summit on student success a little bit over a decade ago, and the student success movement has significantly changed the community college landscape, including some aspects of governance. A lot of people who enter the sector today are surprised that student success hasn't always been a driving force. And your chapter, Jackie, uh, details the origins of the student success movement. So could you tell us where the movement came from and what it means to uh, our colleges today as opposed to a decade or two decades ago? Sure, so uh, the origins of the movement really started in the 1980s when journalists and scholars and uh, higher ed leaders in some cases, began to question the graduation rates at many types of colleges. And I would say uh, prior to that, the primary focus at community colleges really was on access, uh, offering low tuition, minimal barriers to entry, and a broad array of academic and vocational programs. Under the assumption that if you had those elements, graduation would sort of take care of itself. And what uh, people came to realize, especially as all of higher education, but community colleges in particular, came to be more diverse and to uh, engage a much broader swath of the population, both recent high school graduates and adult learners, um, that we couldn't just assume that if we offered it and it was easily accessible, that that would automatically in translate into student success. So in the 80s, you started to hear this drumbeat begin of concern about graduation rates. And then in 1990, Congress passed the Student Right to Know Act. That was a really kind of seminal moment um, because it required that data be published for the first time on colleges' graduation rates. And those data took a while for that process to get going but those data started to come out in the late 1990s. 
and they sparked considerable criticism about low graduation rates, particularly at community colleges, um, and especially for low-income, first-generation, underrepresented students. Now, I need to say that there were some real issues with the way those graduation rates were calculated. They were based on first-time, full-time freshmen, uh, which is a comparatively small percentage of the community college student population. Um, so they weren't representative, especially at community colleges, of the total student experience. They also assumed that a degree was what everybody coming to a community college wanted to get. And of course, we know that people come to community colleges for a wide, wide variety of reasons. Um, and sometimes coming, taking a course or two, people have met their objective and they move on and they're very happy with their experience. They consider it to have been successful. Um, but nonetheless, this really did raise a concern that too many students were coming into community colleges and not progressing toward a degree. So that's sort of how this whole process got started and, and it's moved through a number of phases since then um, that we can sort of track and talk about. Okay. Jackie, can you talk about um, the role the philanthropic community um, has played in, in the, the degree completion emphasis? Um, I know in the chapter you highlight, all, you know, Gates and Lumina and um, I forget who else, but, but there were a list of sure. the different initiatives that they have um, jumped on. And sure. also, you can talk a little bit about the federal government and the state government's role in also pushing the um, effort. Sure, I'm happy to. And it really was sort of a combination of those three entities, I would say, um, at, at least initially. So I've mentioned already that the feds were really important with the Student Right to Know Act. Um, then in the George W. Bush administration, there was the Spellings Commission. Margaret Spellings was the Secretary of Education. And uh, she had this commission that looked broadly at higher ed and they issued a report in 2006 that was critical of graduation rates. Um, and then in 2008, there was a reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, the last one that we had, by the way, um, that addressed some, but by no means all of the criticisms of the Student Right to Know Act. So the feds kept up this drumbeat. Um, then the foundations funded a number of reports um, focusing on graduation rates that were influential. Probably the most important of those were a series of reports called Measuring Up. First one came out in the early 2000s. And those were um, especially influential because they graded the states, A, B, C, D, E, F, A, B, C, D, F, on a number of elements, one of which was graduation rates. Um, and that people, there was a lot of criticism about the methodology and whether it was appropriate, but it got states attention and um, set the stage for states to start um, doing performance-based budgeting um, where they uh, made at least some of their funding to colleges contingent on performance often measured by graduation rates. Um, the foundations didn't, do, so on one 
on the, in one way, the foundation sort of cranked up the pressure by funding these reports. They also provided technical assistance to help colleges figure out how they could perform better. So they sponsored actually a number of new nonprofits as well as researchers and associations such as ACCT to uh, promote efforts at improving graduation rates. Probably the two most prominent uh, efforts were Achieving the Dream, um, which has spun off now as an independent organization that began as a grant funded initiative. It continues to provide technical assistance and support to colleges uh, that are interested in student success. Um, there's also Complete College America, um, which again is now a separate organization that really focuses around state policy um, on college completion. So there are now uh, organizations that are really dedicated to this and they started with the foundations. Um, the Lumina Foundation also set a national attainment goal and encouraged states to do the same. So uh, at present, there are 45 states that have set attainment goals. And that's actually up from 42 when uh, David and I completed editing the, the book. Um, in addition, there are 37 states that have linked some or all of their funding to performance metrics. So it's really been this sort of constellation of the feds, the states, the foundations supporting um, the research community. I, I should probably also mention in the community college world, uh, the Community College Research Center at Teachers College, which has gotten a lot of grants um, from foundations and from the federal government to study college, com study completion at community college and has been very influential in uh, identifying research-based best practices for community colleges to improve student success. Um, you also describe in, in the chapter um, the guide to guided pathways um, effort. And um, I, I think it's described, you know, not necessarily as a specific, you know, linear, do this, do that, do that. You, you kind of give a broader overview. Um, can you talk about guided pathways, what it is and why trustees should know about it and care about it? Sure, uh, it's become a, a sort of a catch-all term for both an initiative and a set of reform activities. Um, so um, I've mentioned some of these organizations, the Community College Research Center, Achieving the Dream. There was also a project called Completion by Design that was important. Um, they're, they're a coalition of community colleges, associations like ACCT, AACC, um, nonprofit organizations like Achieving the Dream, Jobs for the Future, there have been a number of groups. They've all kind of worked together to codify the elements of a comprehensive student success model. And it falls under that heading of guided pathways. Um, uh, it's really a way for community colleges uh, and any institution, but I think it's been embraced most thoroughly at community colleges to think about a comprehensive set of initiatives to really rethink the kind of whole enterprise around student success. And I think that's why it's important for trustees because this goes way beyond a niche program or a kind of one-time activity. It is really asking the institution to uh, 
to rethink how they do business um, in pretty fundamental ways. So um, it's, it's organized around uh, four uh, objectives. The first one is to clarify the paths uh, to student uh, end goals. And that's about creating program maps. In many cases, it involves um, uh, reorganizing the curriculum into meta majors. So a student would enter and say, well, I know I want to work in healthcare. I'm not sure what I want to do in healthcare, but I know I'm interested in the healthcare field. And so immediately they, they are asked to pick a pathway and they've got a set of courses that um, are organized so they can complete them sequentially over a set of semesters or quarters um, that will qualify them then to specialize in a number of different healthcare fields. In, traditionally at community colleges, the attitude was more sort of, hey, look, we've got all these fabulous courses. Here's our catalog. The world is your oyster. Go forth and explore. The tuition is low, so have fun. Play, you know, explore, see what's interesting to you. Um, the, the, the issue with that was, especially for low-income students who uh, the tuition may be low, but they may be taking time away from work. They may be paying for extra childcare expenses, extra transportation expenses. There were real costs to spending time sort of taking courses that may not ultimately contribute to their degree. And so this is an attempt to really streamline the process, get students right away onto a degree path and move them expeditiously uh, towards a degree. So it's a big change for colleges who undertake this. They really are rethinking their whole curriculum in many cases. Um, another big piece was to help students choose and enter a pathway early. So, um, a big barrier for a lot of students in community colleges in particular has been remedial coursework. So these are these courses that don't count towards a degree. They are basically reteaching material that uh, the student should have learned in high school. Maybe they did learn it in high school. They've been gone for 10, 15 years. They've forgotten the material or they never really succeeded in those courses in high school. And it's been a big barrier, especially in mathematics. A lot of students at community colleges never made it out of those remedial courses. Um, and and when, uh, what we realized is it's probably not surprising because if the student didn't do well in that course in high school and you basically reteach it the same way that they took it in high school, it's probably not surprising that once again, they didn't get it. Um, so colleges have been really um, rethinking the whole way they think about that. A lot of colleges moving to what's called co-requisite supports. So rather than having a separate remedial class, you enroll the student in a credit bearing course and you offer them additional support through tutoring sessions, extra uh, labs where they can go in and do their homework with access to, uh, to instructors right there to help them. A lot of different kinds of supports, but there's been a realization um, that just, you know, once more were louder was not the way to do it. Um, and a rethinking kind of in mathematics really of what was necessary for a lot of programs. Was it really necessary for students to pass college algebra, um, to pass calculus? Uh, for a lot of fields, you don't really need calculus to do that 
particular job. So why are we making students take it? Especially if it's such a barrier for them. So there's been a lot of rethinking there. A lot more emphasis on advising, helping students stay on a path. Um, that's often a big expense item for community colleges. And in the chapter, we do a little um, uh, scenario of a college trying to decide whether to reassign resources so they can afford to pay for more advisors um, to support uh, students staying on a clear path and helping them resolve difficulties um, uh, as they arise. And then really studying this process, um, uh, developing learning outcomes, um, measuring how well students are achieving those learning outcomes, um, using technology effectively. So there's a whole constellation of activities uh, that if a college chooses to embrace guided pathways, um, that they will be engaged in. So um, it's important for trustees to know about it, not to know all the jots and tittles of, of the details of it, but to understand that it is a, a fundamental change for most community colleges in the way that they do business. And it will require uh, governing boards probably to make some decision about how to support and, um, and catalyze that. And, and you know, listening to your description there, it was reminding me of lots of different, you know, things that I've seen over the years. And, you know, obviously the ASAP program up in Cooney has been um, successful, kind of addressing all the things you just talked about. But even when, um, as David mentioned, I do the evaluations and assessments. <clears throat> and whenever Guided Pathways is addressed in a president's evaluation, um, it, it always says to me, oh, you know, this is on the trustees' minds. And, you know, and usually the president gets positive remarks on that. You know, that's just an anecdotal, you know, observation. But when it is addressed in the evaluation process or the assessment process, you know, they, they seem to, you know, be proud of the fact that they've embraced that and they understand it and they're moving it forward and they're supporting it. So I'll let David go from here. <laughs> Well, actually, so just really quickly, quickly, um, quick little tangent. Jackie, listening to you actually took me back uh, to something I talk about a lot here at ACCT, which was my time at Northern Virginia Community College. Now, I went right after high school, as my sister did. We were first generation college students. We didn't really know. We didn't really know what to do, you know. Um, we were typical community college students in some ways, um, and that was one of them. And my sister, unfortunately, sort of floated around trying to figure out what classes to take. She knew she was planning on uh, getting a bachelor's degree, you know, and she wanted a straight trajectory, but she did sort of just float around because I saw her go through that experience. <laughs> you know, when I had my first meeting with an advisor, I said, I don't want that to happen to me. So they said, what's your major? I said, biology. Later, I said, English. Um, and, you know, my whole world changed from there. But they really did guide me um, as soon as I told them what my intentions were. Um, and then one one little unexpected outcome I discovered um, when I got to ACCT in 2008 was I, I did well at NOVA. I did well after I transferred to George Mason University. Um, academically, I did well. And I considered my time at NOVA a success, 
But I found out only after I got here that because I didn't secure an associate degree, that probably penalized Nova in a federal database that um, tracks this, this information. So that I, I'm saying this so that trustees who are listening, who may be a little bit newer to this world, will understand why it's important to follow um, these developments because they do fundamentally change the leadership at community colleges. And they also have fundamentally changed a lot of what ACCT does in um, working with boards and presidents. Um, so Jackie, this brings me to a question. Can there be any unintended consequences to focusing so specifically on student success? Um, and if so, what are they? And most importantly for us, um, how can boards make sure that those consequences are avoided? Sure, there, there absolutely are some uh, unintended consequences and um, there are definitely ways to avoid them. Um, the first trap that, that a board can fall into is to fail to take a clear-eyed and non-judgmental view of its current and its historic performance. You can only truly improve if you understand where you're starting from. And it can be uh, difficult for administrators to, uh, to feel comfortable sharing less than happy news with the trustees. So it's really important to set a tone that this is gonna be a blameless, uh, non-judgmental review, that you want, you want the truth, you want you know, um, an unvarnished view, but your intention here is really just to set a baseline and not to blame anyone for activity, actions in the past. Um, and also understanding that as you've explained very well, David, with your own experience, um, there can be many students who have a very successful experience at a community college, um, but don't uh, earn an associate's degree so, um, or a certificate. So, um, so recognizing that. So I think that's the first thing is um, and the president and the board need to kind of share that messaging to make sure the campus understands that uh, the point here is to move forward together, not to blame, engage in blame about what's happened in the past. That way you'll get good, solid um, information. Um, the, the second trap is to fail to identify and carefully track uh, this impact of the success agenda on key student groups. Um, you want to make sure that as you, as you track your outcomes improving, that they're improving for all groups and ideally that you're closing equity gaps, right? Um, it, it, is, it is possible by um, restricting your student population um, that you can have improved graduation rates um, or by only seeing some students do very well and others do poorly that overall your average increases. So you really wanna break that data down and you wanna figure out for your college, who are those key subgroups? So for example, um, if you're located near a military base, probably military students and or veterans are gonna be a key group for you. Uh, elsewhere, they may not be. Um, there may be particular uh, uh, ethnic groups that are large in your locality that are important for you to track. Um, say you've got a recent group of uh, immigrants from, uh, from Africa. 
that have come to your community where you're going to want to watch those particular group of students right so yes you can certainly gender race ethnicity the typical categories that we would look at but you may also want to identify some specific particular student groups that are important uh, to your community um, uh, finally i would say the the last thing is that um, improvements in college outcomes shouldn't come at the expense of academic quality and an appropriate level of rigor. And it's important that, um, that uh, your faculty understand that, that you're not asking them, you're asking them to take a hard look at what they do and to figure out where, it's where the rigor is necessary and appropriate and where it may not be, as an example I already mentioned about calculus. Um, but you're not asking them to make the classes just make them easier, give more A's because we want the, num the percentage of students passing classes to go up. Um, so uh, this comes from the for-profit sector, but I still think it was a good quote. Um, the, the founder of the University of Phoenix used to say that the only thing hard about going to his institution should be the classes. So making the advising process seamless, the financial aid process, um, all of that work really well from the student's perspective so that they can focus in on their academics. And then um, thinking about um, how those classes work, how they could be improved, but, but doing so in a way that actually improves student learning doesn't detract from it um, is important. And I think making sure that, the, that people understand uh, that the board isn't asking for the college to do whatever they can do, whether it's appropriate academically or not, to change the outcomes is important. You know, listening to this conversation, I too am going to go off on a tangent. Um, I'm glad David brought up, you know, the point about um, you really need to know and understand the data so that you know, the leader or, or the college is not being blamed for students that might not have, and you mentioned this early on, you know, what, what their goals are, you know, you might just be somebody that wants to improve your language skills or. And, and I should say that, you know, we've gotten a lot more sophisticated about those metrics. There's, there's now uh, a out, different outcome survey that the feds do. There's also the, the uh, National Student Clearinghouse, um, which didn't exist. Uh, back when this all got started, but has become a very important organization in higher ed. They capture the enrollment for upwards of 90% of students, and they are a means that community colleges use to track their students after they leave them and enable most community colleges now to do a very good job of being able to identify the students who've transferred, regardless of whether they earned a degree. And many colleges now have initiatives who would, they would reach out to a David Connor and say, you know, David, you just didn't file the paperwork. Would you like an associate's degree? Cause we can give you one. <laughs> or you've just got to pay us, you know, that $10 library fee for that book you never returned. Um, you know, and we'll issue you a diploma. <laughs> Wouldn't you like that? So a lot of colleges are doing that now. And, you know, going back and identifying those people, um, you know, it's, uh, we're, we've, We've gotten good at contact tracing long before COVID. We know how to do these things now, and a lot of colleges are doing them to find those students and um, offer them that degree. Yeah, bring some closure. And I and I like the idea of, 
you know, not overwhelming the boards with a lot of data, but being able to provide answers to those questions and also just saying, you know, these are the various metrics, you know, and uh, not overwhelming. I mean, the, the institutional research office probably has that data, but, you know, not to sound like, you know, don't worry your pretty little head about it, but we do want trustees to be aware of, you know, the impact the, these efforts have had. And it also made me think about the performance-based funding and, you know, how all this kind of uh, meshes together in terms of what somebody might describe as success. And um, so that, that, that's just, just my little spiel on that. But one of the things, interestingly, one more quick sidebar is as I'm doing assessments, as we all know, enrollment has now become an issue again. Um, COVID, demographics, there's a whole bunch of stuff at play, obviously. And so I'm seeing this again, anecdotally, that, you know, trustees are putting down enrollment, enrollment, enrollment as, as a primary concern, you know, going forward. And it's just something I'm noticing, you know, as I'm doing assessments and stuff this year. And it's something that, you know, I, I think we always still have to keep our eye on the prize with the, you know, the intended outcomes. Um, but moving on to our, our next question, um, you spend time in the chapter describing the board's role in student success. Uh, can you give us a quick overview of the roles that boards should play in a college's student success agenda? And I know you've already touched on this somewhat, but maybe just a quick summary point or two. Sure, I'm happy to. So as I've already mentioned, you should start by conducting a clear-eyed review of the college's past and current performance so you understand where you are. Then defining what success means in the college's context um, you know, graduation, degree completion are, is going to be one piece of it likely, but there's probably others. There's probably elements of transfer that you want to know about. There's probably elements regarding career and technical education. Uh, there may be elements regarding adult basic education, English as a second language. What a, thinking about the mission of the college uh, and then how you want to look at what success means for you. So yes, there may be these metrics that you're responsible for to the state um, or to your system of community colleges, but you wanna think about for us as a community, what, what does success look like for us? Um, and then establishing a few goals and metrics. I totally agree with you, Colleen, we don't wanna bury trustees in data. So you need to pick a few things that are gonna go on that dashboard that you're gonna look at regularly and will help you know how the college is doing. Um, then the, the president and his team are gonna put together a student success action plan. Hopefully, uh, you know, and ideally this happens within the context of strategic planning. So it gets built into everything else the college is also working on. And the board may be called on to approve budget reallocations, uh, to lobby for additional funding, to support the plan, um, and to engage in fundraising to support the student success agenda. So um, there's a lot of different roles that trustees can play there supporting the president and his team or her team as they uh, put a plan together and implement it. And um, then the last piece is monitoring the progress and making adjustments as necessary 
And I would just put a shout out to, I think um, we, we covered this in my chapter um, and I think it's probably about the only place that it's covered in the book. So I, I wanna mention it. There's a really important role for the uh, trustees to play in recognizing and celebrating success. Nobody works at a community college to get rich, but the reality is if there's a four-year institution down the street where they could also work, they'd probably make more money working there. So they're not, even when you can't give a bonus or any kind of financial recognition, the pat on the back, the recognition, the thank yous to faculty and staff, because all of the students that success agenda means people are working harder. And it's a labor of love, and it's very rewarding to see students achieve their goals. Um, so it's certainly not the only, the people aren't doing it looking for a pat on the back, but a pat on the back doesn't hurt and it often helps a lot. So finding opportunities as a group, as a group of trustees through formal recognitions and awards and convocations and other kinds of events, but then also individually when you see somebody on campus um, or in the community to say, hey, great job. You know, I think um, that's a really important role for trustees to play. It, it um, I think for any of us who've ever played a leadership role, you can forget that, uh, that how meaningful that is. Um, you can discount the, the power that you have the, as a leader. Um, uh, to affect people. And uh, so taking advantage of that to say, great job, thank you, you're, you're doing wonderful work is really, really important. And that recognition, I would agree with you, is really important, Jackie. And, and one quick side note, I, I have a friend who is a uh, researcher who worked at a you know, prestigious research institution in, in the Boston area. But he also taught a class at a one of the local community colleges. And he always said he really enjoyed teaching at the community college um, more so just because the students themselves were more committed and engaged in his opinion, you know, based on seeing the difference between the two. And that's not a ding on the research institutions. Um, he's done great work there and ha has made, you know, incredible um, findings and stuff, but, I think it is important to recognize that, as you said, people that are there often are there because of their commitment to the students, to the mission, to the community. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate everything that you've said about all of that too. Um, actually, Colleen and I were just recently meeting and talking about um, recognition as a form of positive reinforcement, obviously. Um, you know, I used to work at an organization where our actual model was based on providing resources sort of as passive education and then educational initiatives as a more active version of educating and then recognition for people who, you know, proved that, that they were committed, they were invested and they had done a good job at like assimilating that information and doing something with it. It was in a very different kind of sector, but, um, you know, I, I don't think it ever hurts. And I can also tell you that working at ACCT, um, everybody that works here, you know, we, it, yeah, that kind of human interaction and that kind of appreciation is vital. You know, it's one of the things that gets us through the year is actually 
which has made this kind of a tough year is looking forward to events that we have so that we can meet face to face with our trustees because they're so generally engaged in their colleges and celebratory about it. They wanna to come to these meetings to talk about the great things their colleges are doing. Um, and that kind of thing is contagious. It makes everybody more invested. Um, so a lot of times college, community college trustees are used to being out in the community touting the good work of their college. They may not always remember to do the same thing at the college. So, um, you know, they're used to getting up at the, the Rotary Club meeting and the county council meeting and all those places and saying, hey, let me tell you about the fantastic work that's happening at our college. Um, especially in these times of COVID when we're, everybody is working so hard and there probably aren't the resources to, to, to recognize people financially that everybody would like. Taking time to thank and celebrate and appreciate, I think uh, it goes a huge way and it builds so much goodwill uh, and uh, it just will be the thing that spurs that staff member who may be pretty exhausted right now to just rededicate themselves and and you know keep going. That is such a great point and I am going to take advantage of it to do a really quick plug for the month of April, which is Community College Month. This association will be leading a national effort to promote Community College Month, which is basically a celebration of community colleges throughout the country. And we encourage a grassroots approach. So trustees, board members at their colleges to drive a push to celebrate what their college does and its value to the community through every avenue that you've got. So write op-eds. As a trustee, you can do that, work with your board chair and your CEO, um, but write op-eds, you know, get your students on the local news because they deserve to be on the local news and your president and faculty and various others at the college, but be, be, assertive about that. Um, that's all I'll say about that because it's a tangent, but um, I've got one more question for you, Jackie. Um, so we worked on this book, the second edition of Trusteeship in Community Colleges. It was originally published 20 years ago in Y2K. So that was a long time ago. It was before social media existed as we know it now. Um, and the original book was really a very straightforward handbook, a guide. This is how to be a community college trustee. These are your roles and responsibilities and your limitations. And, um, and that was about it. And the current book is that, but we've added a little bit more to it. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing we added was a first chapter from our president and CEO, J. Noah Brown, that kind of gives the historic context of community colleges. It's not that dense, um, you know, it's not too heavy and too much to read, but it's a really important, um, it, it sets the stage for what trustees are doing for their colleges and in their communities. And then Jackie, I think you actually suggested this final chapter that you authored about student success. And because it's not um, a how-to approach, it's more informative, I'd love you to talk a little bit about why you thought it was important to include it in this book. I think it is. Um, and so I'm not challenging that notion, but I want you to share that with people. Sure. So I think it's really important 
uh, as a trustee, you can get mired in the budget, the physical plant decision, the long-term planning, the, the government relations, um, a lot of the internal business of running a college. And you can lose track of who the ultimate beneficiaries are of the college, which of course, primarily are the students. And so taking time as a trustee to think about the student experience, to help the college think about the student experience, making sure that it is as, um, as effective as, uh, as it can be, is just a really important element of being a trustee. And it's a piece that um, sometimes because the, the work is, is so intense and there's such a big agenda of everything a trustee needs to, uh, to think about, uh, you can lose track of that. But at the end of the day, it's about the students. That's why the college is there. Um, and so taking that moment, and I would encourage trustees as well, many colleges have a student trustee who brings that perspective. Um, uh, if there isn't an opportunity to sometimes bring in student government representatives, others, it's worthwhile um, to take that moment to hear directly from students about their experience and to understand that. So. That was, that was my feeling that it was, it was important to do because at the end of the day, the college is there to help students reach their goals, to be successful uh, in their academic pursuits, whatever success may mean to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I may, I'm gonna add one little thing to that, um, which is that <clears throat> just, and this is all coming from listening to, to you today. Um, you know, we at ACCT, we used to, our original model was advocacy and trustee education. And now it's advocacy, trustee education and student success. And when we began with student success, it, we are, the vocabulary of it was really talking about metrics and that meant enrollment metrics, but also academic metrics, you know, measuring um, transfers and enrollments and certificates and stuff. And what has come out of that, this is why I wanted to explain this. Um, the reason that ACCT issues so many research reports on issues like food and housing insecurity and, um, mental health and and student parents and all of these different things is because this has been an evolution from looking at those metrics into realizing that when we understand when boards understand the barriers to student success then they're able to resolve those barriers and what it has really done is also revealed real inequities that i think generally may not have been um not even acknowledged, but wasn't within the consciousness of a lot of people. So I think people didn't realize that, you know, as long as everybody is given an equal amount of things, of opportunities, then they have the responsibility to perform as well as one another. And that's not realistic. That's why we focus on equity so much. So that's really what a lot of those research publications are. And I just want to add that because I know we've had some people ask, well, I've been asked by a few people, you know, um, I, you know, I get the advocacy and I get the, you know, teaching us about how to govern. Um, and these reports are really cool, but how do they fit in? And that's how they fit in. They're really solving 
the problems so that the colleges can accomplish their mission, but it's an ongoing evolution, like everything you've been talking about. And I really, you know, these days, and probably most colleges are do, doing this, but they may or may not have shared it with their trustees. I just, for another, uh, I'm an independent consultant and I, I work with a lot of uh, different organizations around the country. And, and this year I had the privilege of doing a number of student focus groups with students about the experience of remote education. And if you haven't done research on your student population to understand what they're going through with remote education, you, you owe it to them and to yourself to, to do that and to listen to their voices because it is extraordinary what students are going through these days. I've facilitated focus groups for 25 years. I've never been on the verge of tears in a focus group and I was numerous times this year. Uh, these students are extraordinary what they are living through trying to be college students in the midst of this pandemic and all of the economic uh, and health issues that it has raised. So um, for those of us sitting in warm, comfortable homes with internet that usually works at desk uh, with a, in a quiet room, uh, it is extraordinary to think about what these students are experiencing, trying to do their jobs of being a college student. So um, that's just one last plug that I would make. Many colleges have already done that work, um, but it's, it's really valuable, I think, for trustees to hear it. To purchase Trusteeship in Community Colleges, A Guide for Effective Governance, Second Edition, visit the ACCT bookstore online. Additionally, please feel free to get in touch if you have ideas for future episodes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.